reading from the epistle of 1 Peter. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show prosper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Wives, in the same way, submit yourself to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their husbands like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considered as you, lie, as you live with your wives and treat them with the respect as a weaker partner and heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. What a simple passage. <laughs> if you don't mind, I'm going to say one more short prayer, so please bow with me. Dear Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth in the meditations of our hearts. Be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. And in the oldest prayer of the church, I pray, come Holy Spirit, come. In Jesus' name, amen. So this spring, we've been making our way through the book of 1 Peter. And I understand we all haven't been here for this journey. Uh, if you have a desire to catch up, all of our sermons are on our website under the worship page. So you just click on a little link and it'll bring you to our podcast. And I will review uh, some of uh, 1 Peter 1 today for those who have not been with us. The title of the message today is The Way of Jesus. And I'd like to begin with this question. Have you ever heard the phrase, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy? Who here has heard of that phrase, right? Okay. Let me tell you how true that is. It's been 20 years since I uh, wed my bride, and uh, I learned very early on that my wife was not a fan of uh, men's weekends, where I would go maybe hunting, fishing, hiking, or whatever. It was a trigger for her. And I said, well, babe, why don't you do a woman's weekend just a night away? You could use a break from me, right? But she paused, right? And she said, I... 
Let me tell you the origin of why I struggle with men's weekends away, guy, guy weekends away. See, my wife grew up in Minnesota, in Minneapolis, a suburb called Hopkins. And uh, for four weeks out of the year, there's deer season. Do we have any hunters in the room? Any hunters? Okay. Well, it starts somewhere in November, and it's freezing by, the, by that time of the year. And these hunters, they go to great lengths to set up you know, the stands and all this and that. So they have four weeks to make their mark. And so Carly's dad, mind you, they had four kids. My, my wife's parents had four kids uh, but before the age of 23. And the last kid had special needs. He's had six or more open heart surgeries. But Tom said, babe, you know, to my mother-in-law, babe, I just need to get away for a while. So he would leave her, not just for one weekend, not just for two weekends, not just for three weekends, sometimes four weekends in a row. Now, wives, would that bless you? No, right? But Tom's like, look, I have this window. I'm going to go. And she says, I don't want you to go. And he goes anyway. So he, he sets out this one morning. It is probably 2, 3 a.m. He sets out, drives a couple of hours away, and it's below freezing. He pops his trunk, and guess what? The guns have been removed from his truck or from his vehicle. And that did not bless him either. And so <laughs> he decided after all this hard work that uh, he thought it best to drive back to Minneapolis and then take every bit of makeup, every curling iron, and every blow dryer, not just from his wife, but from his daughters, his two daughters, and get his guns and go back hunting. So the, the women of the house woke up, and here Carly's mother thought, oh, I've tricked him, you know, it'll serve him right, only to discover with wet hair that they have no blow dryer in the whole house, no makeup. And Carly learned a valuable lesson that day, which was clearly it's every man for himself in the Vellner household. So she then spent the next several years until she moved away, she, she confessed to me, I would then hide my makeup and my blow dryer uh, all throughout my room, you know, till I went to college. You know, as we look at today's passage, it deals with life, not just in the world, but in the home, doesn't it? It's one of these passages that, it's a difficult passage if we don't dig deep into it. And uh, it's our tradition here to, to work our way through whole books of the Bible. And so we're gonna work our way through this passage and hopefully bring honor to God and, and life change in all of us. The big idea, I think, from the passage is this. The gospel redefines how we are to live in the world and in the home. Simple enough. The gospel redefines how we are to live in the world and in the home. So we're going to break this into two parts. The first part, the gospel redefines how we are to live in the world. Uh, Peter begins chapter 2 kind of setting a foundation for all of chapter 2 and chapter 3. So we're going to start with uh, the beginning of chapter 2. He writes, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, live such good lives among the pagans or unbelievers, that though they accuse you of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. In other words, that they would come to faith. I urge you as foreigners and exiles, live such good lives that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. 
So as a means of review, Peter's revisiting or reusing this language of foreigners and exiles that we see right out of the gate. 1 Peter 1, verse 1, he writes, I am writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners. The only interesting part of that is he wasn't writing to foreigners. This language of foreigners and exiles is spiritual language. It's not physical language. What he then goes on to say is, you have been chosen to, to kind of leave something and go to something as basically followers of Jesus. You've been born again, he writes later in chapter 1. And so don't try to squeeze all of your longings into this life. As followers of Jesus, there's a new life waiting for you. There's a new world waiting for you. And so through your suffering, grab on to hope and take the long view. And that's how we started this sermon series where Peter's saying, hey, as followers of Jesus, God is creating a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no more decay and spoil and rot and tears. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. So hope for that world. And now as we shift to chapter 2, he's saying live for that world. Don't just lock yourself up in a closet. As foreigners and exiles, now go be missionaries pointing to that world. I don't know about any of you, but when I grew up, I thought of missions as you had to go to a third world country. And what Paul, excuse me, what Peter is saying here is, is, is very different from that. He's saying, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, wherever you live, in your homes, in your neighborhoods, on Daniel Island, Mount Pleasant, Charleston, wherever you're living, live as foreigners and exiles, living in such a way to bring glory to God, glow for his glory. We're all called to live as missionaries for the good of those around us. That's how he starts the passage. But then he drops this bomb. He says, submit yourselves. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Show respect, proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. All right. So who in here likes the idea of submission? Right? I got a real strong laugh over here, right? Uh, Peter says how we're going to live this faith out is not by powering up, but by powering down. Not by rising up, but by falling down. And I, clearly, it's a struggle for us today, but it's been a struggle in the history of the church from the beginning of time. Uh, take, for instance, this quote from Henry Nouwen. One of the greatest ironies of the history of Christianity is that its leaders constantly gave in to the temptation to power, political power, military power, economic power, or moral and spiritual power. Even though they continued to speak in the name of Jesus, who did not cling to his divine power, but emptied himself and became as we are, what makes the temptation of power so seemingly irresistible? Maybe it is that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God, easier to control people than to love people, easier to own life than to love life. And Peter is saying, submit yourselves 
for the Lord's sake. Submit yourself following the example of Jesus, he would later say at the end of chapter 2. We're not going to dive into that. Submit yourselves to the Lord's sake. And as I was preparing the sermon, I couldn't help but picture Jesus as he was making his way towards Jerusalem, making his way towards the cross. Uh, We read in the book of John that at a certain point, at a last meal, he then takes off a cloak. He takes off his outer garments. He places them down. And he puts a towel around his waist. And he then bends down at the table and he starts cleaning the disciples' feet. Now this redefines greatness for the world forever. Why? That was the act of a slave. It was disgusting to clean another person's feet. They would have grit and grime and animal feces on their feet. That was reserved for a slave. And Jesus, right before his death, he drops to his knees and he cleans the disciples' feet. And and Simon's like, no, Lord, not me. And Jesus says, if you want any part of me, you have to receive this. And Peter then, in good Peter fashion, says, well, not just my feet, but my head and my hands as well. John 13 records the end of that encounter. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you not understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. You should do as I have done for you. Don't grab your sword. Grab a towel. Don't run to your keyboard to mouth off. Grab a cross and say, how can I serve and sacrifice for Christ today in my world, in my neighborhood, in my workplace, etc." Thinking about this passage, I embarrassed a couple people in the first service. I'm going to do it again right now. I couldn't help but think of Jonathan Blauert. Many of you don't even know him yet, but I know him. Uh, Tiffany, his wife, and Jonathan, they moved from Ohio. She serves as our director of operations. But every Sunday morning, Jonathan, who loves to help with sound production, shows up at between 6 and 7 a.m. here at the DI Fellowship on Sundays and is here till about 12.30, running the sound. And let's look and wave at Jonathan. Hey, Jonathan, he's got his cup. And, uh, but he gets it. He's... He's not powering up. He's powering down for the sake of everyone in this room. And then we've got this beautiful kind of awkward example in Cody Quinn and Ashley Lewis. Because I think two to three days a week, they're serving as cross guards for our local elementary school. They have virtually nothing to gain. They run our student ministry. But they're there to be the hands and feet of Jesus Have any of you seen Cody or Ashley out there? Yeah, some of you have. That's what it means. And and Peter's calling all of us to follow this example, to say, don't power up, power down. Grab a towel in your cross and follow him. And that's the foundation for all of chapter 2 and 3. So now to point number 2 of our sermon. The gospel redefines how we are to live in our home. 
He goes, wives, in the same way, or like Jesus, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. I've taught this before, but as you study scripture, there's no text without context. That's an exegetical principle you have to live by. So what's the context that Peter's writing to? And how does it apply to us today? Well, in those days, they were living in Greco-Roman times. And in those days, wives were oppressed. And I'd argue some wives are still oppressed today. For instance, wives were to receive no instruction outside of the home, no education. They were to have no friendships outside of their husband. And they were to have no faith or faith allegiance outside of their husband's faith. I dug up some quotes that speak to this. This is from the great Greek philosopher Plutarch. Good name. A woman ought not to make friends of her own, but to enjoy her husband's bands of friends in common with him. The gods are the first and most important friends. Hence, it is becoming for a wife to worship and to know only the gods that her husband believes in, and to shut the door tight upon all strange rituals and outlandish super superstitions. For with no God to do, stealthy and secret rites performed by a woman find any favor. The historian Sarah Pomeroy writes, a family's religion was transmitted through males. In the, hopefully I get this right, paterfamilias, the ranking male in a Roman household was the chief priest. Upon marriage, a girl renounced her father's religion and worshiped instead at her husband's hearth. Another historian, Ben Witherington, the dominant impression left by our early Jewish sources is of a very patriarchal society that limited women's roles and functions to the home and severely restricted, one, their right of inheritance, two, their choice of relationships, three, their ability to pursue a religious education or fully participate in the synagogue, and four, their freedom of movement. And yet, as seen here and elsewhere, the gospel changes everything for women. Specifically, did you notice Peter is directly instructing women or wives here? He's a nonconformist in some sense. He's saying, okay, the structures remain. The, the husband has the responsibility as the head of the home. And yet, wives, let me teach you directly how to live out your faith. So he is in a kind of stealthy kind of manner saying, women, as you live out your faith, dot, dot, dot. So he's instructing the wives. He's also empowering the wives. The language is interesting. It's very strong missiological language. He says, Live in such a way, if I can find it here, that your husbands may be, quote, won over without words by your behavior. 
So he's empowering women, in some ways redefining their role. Before the men had all the power and the women were second-class citizens, something's changing here. And he's saying, women, as you come to faith, still honor your husband, but definitely try to convert him. You're on mission with God. And then he goes on to talk about what that life, what that inner life looks like. And I believe he elevates wives or women both for that day and for this day. As we know from Proverbs chapter 31, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And here he basically says, women, don't let your identity, your value be wrapped up in your outward appearance. That's not just a message for then, that's a message for now. My wife and I, we go through all my sermons together. She's a great uh, editor of my sermons. <laughs> and she said, you know what's interesting? Because we're dealing with some real struggles in some marriages around us right now. She says, you know what's interesting? Men, they have this secret temptation towards lust and pornography. It's the secret life, and it's taken down so many men and so many marriages. She said, but I believe there's a parallel it's gotten to the point in our society where women, especially as they age, they have all these secret procedures or things they're doing to try to hold on to their beauty for as long as it will last. And if they had to stand up front and say, here's all the things I do to try to remain beautiful, it would be shameful. But there's pressure. There's this pressure on the society that says, women, you are what you look like. You are what, you're, what you wear. And Peter says, rubbish. When you get up in the morning, get dressed from the inside out, for you're a daughter of God. So he's, he is, he is uh, I think, instructing wives, empowering wives, and elevating wives. Uh, specifically, I think wives are called to stealthy evangelism and dignity as followers of Jesus in our passage. What about husbands? The passage goes on. Husbands, in the same way. Note, that's how the first part toward the, towards the wives started. Wives, in the same way, like Jesus. He goes on. Husbands, in the same way, like Jesus. And he says, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner. We'll come back to that. And as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. He says, husbands, in the same way, like Jesus, be considerate, then he says, which literally means be knowledgeable. This, this, this means, husbands, you're to be students of your wives. Do you listen to her? Do you know what she thinks, what she feels, what she needs, what she fears? Be considerate. Know everything and anything about your wife. And then he uses some crazy language as you live with or have intimacy with your wives. Elsewhere in the scriptures, this word is used for physical intimacy. He's, he's basically saying as you basically come along, listen to and serve your wives. And let me be very clear. He's saying you're not, being, you're not to be demanding or neglectful. You're to care for her. Listen to her, love her, support her. And then the passage goes on. 
Treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Oh, by the way, the stability of your faith depends on your service to your bride. This language of the weaker partner, let me tell you what it definitely does not mean. It doesn't mean that spiritually or existentially, they're less than. In fact, he clearly says otherwise, as the heirs with, uh, with you of the gracious gift of life, he's literally talking about physically as they're weaker and also as they're oppressed in the class system of society. He's saying, actually, don't power up, power down and lift them up as your equal, as you being sons, they being daughters of the living God. So we're called to listen to and to serve our wives, and we're also called to protect and respect them. No notion of abuse or dishonor will be allowed. It reminds me of Ephesians chapter 5 where uh, Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Oh, really? So you, you want me to take off my outer garments? You want me to, yep. You want me to get down on my knees as low as it, yep. Pick up a cross and a towel and serve her with my own, my everything, yep. And once you get that, you get me. There's no length that a husband uh, should be restricted from in terms of loving his wife. He needs to be all in. I don't know if there's a better picture of this than what we heard last week from Pastor Jim and Kathy. Where are they? Did they take off already? I embarrassed them in the first service. Last week, I interviewed Pastor Jim, who served two tours in Vietnam, and it was really hard. So we looked at some of this passage against his testimony. What's it like to submit to incompetent authority? And as he served two tours in Vietnam, he came home, and he was in the spiral of darkness and depression, and he took up the bottle, and he drank, and he drank, and he drank. But something happened with his wife. She came to faith in Jesus, as did his kids. Now, the first thing she did probably wasn't the healthiest thing, but it's humorous, so I'm going to share it. She walks in from a prayer meeting, and she goes, Jim, I have found Jesus. And she has a Bible. I'm about to hit him. I have found Jesus. I've confessed my sins. I have new life in him. And if you don't do the same thing, you're going to burn in hell. And I asked Jim last week, did that work? Did that convert you? He says, no. That did not work. But what did work? Then for three years, Kathy kept her eyes on Christ, had a quiet but strong faith. And Jim would later share, I wanted what she had. She had a peace, a freedom that I needed and, and I wanted. And so after three years of watching her and actually honoring her throughout the whole process, creating space for her to pursue this faith, he dropped to his knees and gave his life to Jesus. And now, not only did he give his life, now he served many other lives through his faith as a pastor. You see, the gospel redefines how we are to live, not just in the world, but in the home. So I want to close by asking this question. 
What if we really live like this? How radical would it be? What, what, I know in the West, we're, we're, we're so used to powering up and survival of the fittest, it's all up to me. You are what you look like. And Peter's saying enough with that. Follow him, find your identity in Jesus. Find the model of your life in him. So as you go home today, whether you're married or not, how can you not power up but power down and pick up a towel and serve him? And in doing so, point others to him. That's the call. That's the call that the evangelistic zeal, and it permeates everything that we're to touch and to say. And I know we're going to fumble it along the way, but God's grace is sufficient, right? I love how it ends. We're all co-heirs in this grace. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would search our hearts, you would know us. I pray for radical honesty right now. That where we've gotten this wrong, would you forgive us? And would we ask for forgiveness and a fresh start? God, I pray for the marriages in this room and represented beyond this room. God, would you redefine how we love one another in every way, including the home. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.